it in every enterprise and every business enterprise. So you re remove charity and uh, other type of non so-called non-profit activity. <laughs> it's, it's a poor choice of the word non-profit activity. But in all business enterprise you have to have these three accounts. And then uh, you have to know how the money is allocated or distributed through these three accounts. And without that, you don't understand what's going on. And that is the answer to the paradox of interest problem. Because uh, it just washes together the income, it doesn't separate out the managerial part. And, and uh, it's just an oversimplification to say that there is this bidding for capital goods and the entrepreneur will get it. Uh, uh, revenue over a number of years, the life of the capital goods, and then there is this discrepancy. Because investment is a, a, a meaningless word unless you fill it with content, when you separate the role of the capitalist, the entrepreneur, and the manager. And of course, as time goes, there could be different combination. These two roles could be united, or those two, or those two, or all three. Or there could be several managers and so on. Usually there's only one entrepreneur. But let's not go into this. So this is, uh, I thought it was so important that I introduced a name for it. Triple Entry Revenue Accounting. No question. Well, please ask a question, please. I'm, I'm so anxious to well, hear. I got how? Really? Uh, would it be correct to say that the reason the, uh, the, the return on the machine never goes to that level is because there's room for the uh, entrepreneur and the manager and the rest is the capital. So the interest rate is, goes, it can only be that highest the capital investment, but you must leave enough profit above and beyond that to cover the, the two other accounts, the, the, the uh, profit account and the manager account. And if there's no profit, why do it? And if you can't pay a manager, then, you know... Well, you, you don't even know whether the enterprise is profits or not. If, unless you uh, introduce these three uh, players and the three accounts which are involved, there is no way to know. You are in the dark. And when you are in the dark, you are likely to make mistakes. So to avoid that, they, uh, you, uh, at the very minimum, you have to identify these three persons or roles and the three different accounts. And uh, the flow of money, the revenues come in, uh, and we always consider after depreciation. I mean, 
uh, if we bring in depreciation, it would make the picture far more complicated. But I thought that I simplify things and I just assume when I say revenue, it always means net revenue, it always means revenue after depreciation. So that it means in practice that the capital goods you have uh, never wear out. They uh, live forever. Why? Because every uh, quarter, say, you put in money into this depreciation account to take care of the day where you have to renew it. This is too old or absolute. Uh, you have to, but uh, there's no need for making the picture as complicated as that because what we think is that this lives forever. Why? Because we renew it, we inject the <laughs> elixir to make it uh, immortal. The piece of, we know it's not, but we make it so with the depreciation account. And one, if this is done, then I think the whole problem of paradox of interest can be disposed of by saying triple entry revenue counting. Now, more? Yes. Professor, are you advocating a separate uh, separate accounts. A separate? Uh, a separate set of accounts um, because you cannot, you have to continue your double entry accounting for, you know, uh, cash flow, assets, liabilities, so forth, you know. So your triple entry revenue accounting, uh, are you advocating that to uh, be executed as, uh, as an assignment? existing accounting? Uh, yes, very much so, and uh, uh, I see this is not the latest version. The very latest version has an extra paragraph on how uh, I borrow this word from common use, uh, corporate governance Governance. I don't know if uh, this suggests anything to you, but the idea is that uh, in a very complex corporate structure, there is you find, uh, of course, the bond holding department, the treasurer, and then you find the entrepreneur and you find the manager, you see. So it's very clear that the manager is subordinate. And who is the entrepreneur in a complex uh, <coughs> corporation with lots of millions of shares and shareholders and so on? Well, the original idea was that the shareholders have an annual meeting where they gather and the shareholders have votes, but not one man one vote, but one share one vote. So if you own uh, a million shares, you have a million votes, whereas the other guy who owns one share has only one vote. But 
this doesn't sound very democratic, does it? <laughs> but in business, it's not these uh, uh, ideals which count, but hard cash. So you have to make profit. You see. Now, anyhow, the uh, so who is the entrepreneur? It's not one man here, but the. Uh, community of the shareholders and they meet every year once maybe twice but that's not important the important thing is that they elect the directors of the corporation okay so uh, all right uh, I, uh, um, just uh, finish by saying that there is a distortion because obviously the manager or the management several managers are subordinate just like in the three man case the manager can be fired right? and the entrepreneur will hire a new one because he's dissatisfied with the performance of the person. Now, ideally in the co corporate governance, this should be exactly the same. The directors could fire the managers, all of them or one of them or several of them, but they are the boss. Now this has been completely distorted and what you find is that the managers take over the power. They got the upper hand. The, uh, and the entrepreneurs are, uh, become subordinate, you see? Because they, they introduced all kinds of things, class uh, A shares, class B shares, and so we, we don't go into the, but it's a complete distortion. So what an individual shareholder can do is vote with, with his or her feet, which means <laughs> sell the share. That's the only recourse because uh, and, uh, you know, the idea of firing management is just unheard of. The whole, although sometimes you hear a revolt of the shareholders, but this is not the same. So I, I guess we should. Yeah, and we have 15 minutes. F 15, back in 15 minutes. Okay. A little bit at the end, but then a rather slow start. So if we have this type of discussion again, I hope you will be more active. <laughs> but I, I am by and large very satisfied. Um, <coughs> Professor's going to, to move on to the next subject, uh, the title of which is Cutting the Gordian Knot. So over to Professor. Thank you. This is extra. So it's not really in the course, it's un unannounced special, using the TV jargon of the American <laughs> television industry. Uh, kind of dessert, kind of uh, uh, diversion if you like. 
Now, I, what I suggest to do is that I start now, and, and we have about 15 minutes to 12, so we break, take the break at 12, and when we come back at 2.30, I just continue, rather than uh, going after 12. So there will be no question period until after we come back. I already said a few words about uh, the city of uh, <coughs> a city of Gordius Gordium, the city of Gordium. This is a, uh, an ancient mythological story which was played out in Phrygia. Could you write this down? P H Y R G I A Phrygia. After the R there is an Phrygia. Uh, no, that's that's okay. Yeah. I was trying to spell it in Greek. This, this was an ancient kingdom in Anatolia. Now it's present day Turkey. And it was near Hellespont where they could cross over from uh, uh, from this part of Anatolia to the Asian part. And the uh, mythological story is about a sorcerer, the female, uh, which is perhaps not the right word, uh, say a good type of witch, uh, uh, witch with good will. So this, beautiful sorcerer uh, cast an eye on the plowman, peasant, cultivating land, very handsome but poor at the same time, and suggested to him that she can make him the king of the land, the king of Phrygia. And then the man was uh, ready with the answer, well if you do, can I in return marry you and make you a queen? So I, I leave the love story part out, you can read it up, uh, find it on the internet or anywhere. And the deal was that he will take his wagon and drive to the capital city. And when he arrives, people will welcome him and immediately make him the king. 
Phrygia at the moment didn't have a king and didn't know what to do to get one. So uh, that's all he had to do. Board his wagon and drive to the capital. The name of this man was Gordius. Gordius. So uh, that's what happened. But in the meantime, the sorcerer uh, went ahead and told the people who lived in the capital city that when this wagon arrives, the man who will descend from the wagon is going to their new king. And uh, the inhabitants, inhabitants of the city, of the capital city, believed this. They knew this sorcerer. They liked her, and followed her word blindly. So when he arrived, got off the wagon, they welcomed hail the new king, and they had the king. And the city was renamed after the name of the king. The king was Gordius and the city was renamed Gordius. And big flourishing followed. Uh, they built a brand new temple for the God Zeus, chief of the Olympian gods, and to commemorate the event of the elevation of a simple plowman, that's what he was, very simple plowman, was elevated to the king of the country, Phrygia. To commemorate this, the wagon with which he arrived had a pole and the pole was tied to one of the pillars of the temple of Zeus and it was an intricate tie and the challenge was to untie it and it was apparently very difficult because for quite a number of years people came because the sorcerer also said that whoever can untie that knot will be the master of the world. So many people tried and no one succeeded. And then there was an a longer period of time until Alexander the Great came around. He was on his move from his native Macedonia to Asia. He wanted to conquer in particular Persia and really the rest of the known world. And they knew about Asia and beyond Persia. So 
there he came with his army, heard about the story of the Gordian knot and the challenge that if you want to conquer the world, which in this case meant conquering Asia, then you better prove yourself by untying the knot of uh, Gordian, the Gordian knot. So there he went, Alexander the Great, took a look, and he saw that this was complicated, and he said, well, I'm a soldier, I know what to do, and he took his sword and cut the Gordian knot, which after all fulfilled the uh, challenge that the Gordian knot has to be untied. Rather unusual way of untying, but there it was. And then he went on and uh, conquered the the rest of the known uh, Asia. Well, I'm not following the story, of course, it's very interesting what happened after and how he died and how he, how he, the empire fell apart. So, uh, but the Ever since this event, the challenge is when, they, when there is a challenge, uh, very often they refer to the Gordian knot and they say he solved the Gordian, or he untied the Gordian knot, which means there's a high challenge and an unusual way of solving that or answering that challenge is very often being referred to as cutting the Gordian knot. So uh, that's the story. I stopped my <laughs> storytelling uh, role here and continue with something which is very, very serious and I want to alert you to the problem which is like the Gordian knot which for hundreds of years nobody could untie but actually there is a way an unexpected and unusual way which the world is ignoring and uh, my suggestion is that that's what we should do. So I'm just introducing this and then we break up and after I continue. The problem our Gordian knot which is staring us in the face at this stage in the world is, and I'm very serious, I'm, I'm, I'm almost don't find the proper words to sh 
shake you up and shake everybody up who is willing to listen that the world's monetary system as it is now is dysfunctional already. It's just being hidden, being covered up. And parts of this are as follows. The world's banking system is insolvent. They haven't got capital or they are undercapitalized. And this is covered up by the governments allowing the banks to write fancy values on their assets. But they are by no means market values. The assets could not be liquidated. So in any kind of a run, this would become obvious that the banks are running on empty, as in America say, that you are running a car with an empty tank. That's what the b banks are doing by grace of the government which allows them to, under, uh, to overstate the value of their assets and understate the value of their liabilities. It's a conspiracy. Shouldn't happen. There should be independent bank inspectors who would just put those or close those banks which do not, which are undercapitalized. But actually, the case is worse than that. The very biggest banks are actually have zero capital. That's very serious. It's only a matter, and, and it won't cure itself, because the, uh, the banks are not able to generate enough business and profitable business to recover. In fact, every day they get behind. So it's just a matter of time, and we are not talking about years. You're talking about months, perhaps, before another crisis of the type of 2008 will occur, which will be worse than 2008. Whether it will be the end of the monetary system, as we know it, is, is not a foregone conclusion. But the underlying economy is also very weak. I don't know what happened in the stock market yesterday. Yesterday was Saturday. It was? Yeah, it was closed yesterday. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Of it fell last week quite heavily, though. But uh, the last trading day was Friday. Friday. The, Friday. Uh, the indices were there down about 1.5%. That yeah. kind of uh, yeah, and, and that followed previous yes. falls. So yeah. it it doesn't look good. But even if it recovers, and so on, it's just limping along. It's just very weak. So I mean, banks normally, of course, prosper when the underlying economy is prospering. And uh, conversely, if the underlying economy is weak then the banks uh, cannot hope to recover. 
So I don't want to prognostic, prognosticate and uh, prophecy here. I'm not an oracle, but uh, after any serious analysis, you have to come to the conclusion that the international monetary system is at the end of the rope. And it's a dollar system. Now, uh, the rumors say, but I would give some credit to these rumors, but they say that, of course, the source of the problem is the United States. But they have enough strings to pull that convey the image, project the image, that really the trouble is in Europe. Because the Euro is an artificial currency and uh, it was misconceived and it's, uh, it never had a chance to function because the individual central banks of these countries in Europe which are part of the monetary system such as Greece for example the central bank normally would devalue the currency and meet the crisis that way, hoping that the devalued currency would cut the imports of the country and promote exports, which is a foolish theory, but I'm not going to talk about this here. Uh, and therefore, to cover up the problem which is right there in America, they pull various strings and make it more difficult for the European uh, countries to meet their obligations. And they say, you see, that's the, where the problem is. The euro is not flexible. They should, uh, if they had the flexibility, then uh, the problem wouldn't arise. So it's 12 o'clock, I'm going to adjourn here and continue and explain uh, the further implications. Very bleak situation, but there is a hope that somebody could come and untie the Gordian knot. Well, thank you very much, and we'll continue at 2.30. Thanks very much, Professor.